Hi, and welcome to the latest edition of the Paris Podcast. I'm Charlotte Farrell, and for today's podcast, I've been joined by a guest from our commercial team, our colleague, Ryan Mitchell. We regularly work alongside Ryan in all things data protection and GDPR related, and today we're delighted that he's joined us to discuss subject access requests and the key things that businesses need to know about them. With the arrival of the GDPR in 2018, data protection and the rights of the individuals when it comes to their personal data has really come to the forefront of many people's minds. We're really finding that individuals are much more aware of their rights when it comes to their personal data and how it's handled and we've seen an increase in people and not just employees bringing subject access requests. This brings with it many practical issues and we're hoping to look into some of those today. So today we're going to look at some of these issues not only from the employment angle but also from the general issues that businesses should be aware of and that's why Ryan's joined us. So I suppose the first thing we should talk about is what is the subject access request? Ryan, can you give us a brief overview of of what that is? Of course, and thank you for having me on. So a subject access request is a request by an individual, and this can be a verbal request, a written request, or it can even be a request through an automated online system to receive copies of the personal information which an organisation holds about them. And we call that personal information, personal data. Uh, When making a subject access request, the individual can also ask for additional information about how and why the organisation uses their personal data. Now, individuals have a legal right to make subject access requests, and this is called the right of access. And because it's a right which is specifically set out in data protection law, organisations have a legal duty to respond to subject access requests, subject to some very limited exceptions, which I'm sure we'll come on to. Fantastic, thank you. So it sounds like it's a really broad right in that case then, which can be really time consuming for a business to comply with. When you say personal data or personal information, what does that cover? Is it any time that someone's name is mentioned or is it more limited than that? So personal data means any information that relates to an identified or identifiable living individual. And that's a technical definition, but we can break it down in practical ways. So that individual is called the data subject. And to work out whether a piece of information is classified as personal data, it's helpful to ask two kind of practical questions. So the first question is, does the information identify a living individual? And the information could be identifying on its own. So for example, a person's name, or it might be possible to combine the information with other information held by the organization or that the organization might hold in the future in order to identify someone by combining those. So, for example, an employee number can be combined by an organisation with their HR records to identify who the specific individual in the business has that employee number, and therefore the employee number would be personal data in that example. If we're combining information to identify a person, then we call that indirectly identifying personal data. And if it's obvious from just the piece of data, uh, just a piece of information alone, who the person is, then we call that directly identifying personal data. And those are some phrases that we see in the regulator's guidance. The second question we need to ask is whether the information relates to the individual that we've identified. It's not just enough to be able to identify the individual from the information. The information must concern the individual in some way. So we can take two examples of this. So first of all, the statement that Joe Bloggs lives at 15 Beechcroft Road, and let's say a a personnel file record that says Mary Stewart is dishonest, and I think she's been stealing from us. 
So these are both pieces of personal data. And we know this because the answer to the first question we spoke about, does the information identify a living individual, is yes. Each of these two statements contains the individual's name, meaning they're directly identified. The answer to our second question, does the information relate to the individuals, is also yes. The statement about Joe Blob's address relates to where he lives. The statement about Mary relates to her work performance and her integrity as an employee. So because these statements contain each individual's personal data, they would need to be disclosed following a subject access request. Let's take another example where it wouldn't be disclosable. So let's say we've got hundreds of emails on our business email system relating to Joe Blog's emails he sent and received. Let's say the content of those emails doesn't actually relate to Joe Blog's, rather the reference is to him being the sender or the recipient and his email address and email signature being in those. Is that personal data? Well, the answer to the first question, does it identify an individual, is yes, we can identify joke blogs from those emails. However, the answer to the second question, whether they relate to joke blogs, is no, uh, they don't actually contain substantive information about him. Rather, they're just a record of who sent or received the emails. So his name, his email signature, his email address being on them, is just a record of the fact that he sent or received them. So in this scenario, the emails wouldn't need to be disclosed in response to a subject access request. Uh, the situation would, however, be different if, for example, the substance of the emails, the actual text, what's been discussed, the attachments perhaps, did relate to Joe. For example, let's say there were emails discussing his performance at work. The second question of whether information relates to an individual can lead to a lot of grey areas. And when trying to address these types of questions, it can be really helpful to start with the ICO guidance on the ICO website, which is www.ico.org.uk. And the guidance includes lots of worked examples, which can be really helpful in trying to work out whether a piece of information is personal data or not. That's a really good tip, Brian, and something that we definitely use here as well when we're, we're unsure about whether or not something's going to, to fall into those categories. What happens if the data is anonymized, though? I know a lot of our clients with anonymized data. Does that still count as personal data then, given the questions that you're, uh, you're discussing? So no, if the data has been anonymized, then it isn't treated as personal data. This is because it doesn't identify a living individual. So that first question we spoke about, the answer to that would be no. Uh, provided the organization is confident that the data is you know, genuinely anonymized, then it can be excluded from a subject access request response. Thanks, Ryan, for that really clear explanation. Um, I'm sure that's going to be reassuring for, for quite a lot of people. For three little words, the process really does seem to have some quite big implications, and many businesses don't really understand that until they have to deal with it in practice themselves. So it's, it's really useful to know that they're not on their own there. We've definitely found over recent months, and particularly since 2018 and the GDPR coming into force, that individuals are much quicker to make a subject access request as well. They seem to be much more aware of what they should be sent and what their rights are. Um, and um, I know that businesses do, do find that that can be quite onerous at times. Even though it wasn't really what the process was set up for in the employment world, we've seen them used a lot as a fishing, fishing expedition um, to see if there are any juicy documents that it's worth using to try and kind of justify an employment tribunal claim. Um, and if anything, I think that's probably got worse since the GDPR um, and not better. Are there any particular ways that you see them used regularly in the kind of purely commercial setting by clients or, or customers of business or, or in any different way? 
Yes, we sometimes see customers make subject access requests if there's a dispute, and it's often a very easy way for them to upgrade their complaint to a super complaint, which can take a lot of time and sometimes money to respond to from the organization's perspective. Um, the main protection against these sort of complaints is to have a good subject access procedure in place in readiness. And also it could be really helpful when looking to adopt new IT systems to think about how easy it will be to search for personal data and extract it from those new systems once they're in place. And this thought process when choosing or developing new systems is known as privacy by design. Fab, and so it sounds as though kind of the process and the procedure that a business has in place is, is something that's really important when, when dealing with these types of requests. Um, maybe now's a good time in that case then to talk about the, the key steps that, that the business should take when they're, they're faced with one of these requests. Um, I suppose first, the, the first step to take is always to check the identity of the person making the request um, to make sure that it isn't someone trying to commit fraud or someone trying to get personal data that they, they shouldn't have access to. Um, if it's an employee or someone who knows the business well, then um, you can speak to them to check the request comes from them and that it was a genuine request. Otherwise, you can ask for ID, such as a passport or driver's license or a copy of a bill to check that the request is legitimate. And often people forget that you can do that. So it's something to, to bear in mind if you're unsure about the request. Secondly, always make sure you diarise the key dates. So since the introduction of the GDPR, you have one month to process subject access request. This can be extended by a further two months if the request is particularly large or complex, but it's not an automatic extension. So you do have to update the person who's made the request and tell them that you need more time to do it. And I know that often catches some businesses out when they realise right at the end of the deadline that, that there's going to be a problem. Um, make sure the requests go in the diary and, and if you're dealing with them yourselves, then our advice is always to not leave these requests for the last minute. They can take a long time to deal with, so don't keep pushing it down the line because uh, it's going to catch up, unfortunately. Thirdly, we would always recommend that a business and employer, whoever's dealing with it, checks that the subject access request makes sense. Make sure that you understand what someone's asking for. If not, you can go back to the person who's made the request. You can ask them to clarify it and provide more information. But the ICA, the Information Commissioner's Office, doesn't like you just to ask for information for the sake of it. So do make sure you need that extra information first. And there has to be a legitimate reason asking the benefit of asking for more information though is that the clock stops so while you're waiting to hear back from the person the kind of time frame doesn't keep running so this can be really helpful when the request is big and definitely worth worth utilizing so once a business knows what's being asked for then it has to make reasonable efforts to find any information that was requested Businesses don't have to conduct searches which would be unreasonable or disproportionate um, but they will need to explain what searches they've done and why so it's important to put some thought into that it could involve searching servers databases email folders and paper filing systems anywhere really that the information is stored in a, an organized manner ryan do you want to tell us a bit more about the cost of the subject access request now we know what process businesses are going to have to go through yeah of course so the rule is that normally a business can't charge someone if they make a subject access request there used to be a £10 admin fee under the old law, but that doesn't exist anymore. So under the current rules, now the only time a business can charge for responding to a subject access request is in one of two scenarios, and they're very strictly controlled. So the first one is if the request is manifestly unfounded or if it's excessive. And the second scenario where they can charge is if the organisation is being asked to provide copies of information which the individual already holds. In either of these scenarios, the organization can charge a reasonable fee. 
Um, alternatively, if the request is manifestly unfounded or excessive, then the organisation can actually refuse to process the request altogether. Our advice to organisations is if you're thinking of trying to charge the individual, then it'd be sensible to check with them that they still want to proceed on that basis before carrying out the activities which you'd look to charge for. Uh, that's because if the individual refuses to pay and you've already incurred the costs, then you might struggle to get your money back. If the individual, after you ask them, says, actually, don't go ahead with that part of the request, then you've saved the time and effort of going through with it. Um, additionally, we'd always recommend taking advice if you suspect a subject access request is manifestly unfounded or excessive. And that's because if the data subject complains to the ICO, to the regulator, that you've unfairly refused to respond to their request for these reasons, then the ICO might want to investigate and double check your reasoning for that. And if you've got it wrong, I've got it grossly wrong, then you may face enforcement action and in principle that can include a fine. Um, so also for this reason, it's good practice to still process the parts of a request which you don't object to. So if part of a request is uh, manifestly unfounded or excessive, try and just ask for clarification or refuse to process only those parts and go ahead with the rest of it. The ICO will look upon that more favourably than if you'd outright refused to respond to the entire request. So leading on from this, Charlotte, does the business have to send everything to the individual that they find? That's a really good point, and it's one that's often forgotten about um, in the, the foray of dealing with the, the wider requests. The simple answer is no. Once the company's found all the documents that contain the personal information requested, then someone does need to go through it and needs to identify any documents which don't need to be disclosed to the individual. There's a long list um, and it's set out in the guidance, but some of the most common ones we see are documents which also identify other people and contain other people's personal information. Um, documents which are covered by legal professional privilege, so they were produced in the course of seeking legal advice. Um, references, documents for the purposes of management forecasting or business planning, which would you know, obviously disadvantage and prejudice the business if it was to get out into the wider employment community um, and documents about negotiations between the parties, which could obviously cause an issue if the individual knew what the, the business's position was. If any of that information is found, then the business needs to consider whether it can be redacted to remove the personal information of other people or the information that's going to cause a problem or whether the whole document needs to be kept back. In some circumstances, consent could be obtained from the other people named in the document if it's not going to be possible to redact it. So there's a few options available you know, if those, those conditions do apply. Um, if not, as I said, it can be withheld, but it should be noted on the cover letter that categories of documents have been withheld. You don't have to say which documents, but you do have to refer to the reasons for withholding certain documents uh, in that cover letter. So having mentioned the cover letter, Ryan, I know these are letters you often have to put together for clients when they're responding to, to subject access requests. What information do businesses have to put in the cover letter? Is it specific or is it up to, to individual businesses? So the contents of the letter are actually set out in the law and the ICO guidance sets out um, at length all of the information which needs to be in the body of the letter and also which documents need to accompany it. Uh, often the letter is repeating information that's already in the organisation's privacy notice or privacy policy. So often it's the case that you can crib parts of the letter from those policies wordings. Uh, I won't summarise every item that needs to be in the cover letter, but it's basically the what, why, where and how long of the organisation's data processing activities in relation to that particular individual's personal data. 
Uh, the individual also needs to be reminded in the cover letter of their legal rights, and that includes the right to complain if they've got a complaint. I'd recommend double checking the list on the ICO guidance before sending the cover letter just to be absolutely sure that everything has been ticked off um, and then it should be golden really. Uh, Charlotte, you mentioned earlier that you often see unhappy employees sending subject access requests to their employers. Um, did you want to talk more about the trends that you've been seeing for those types of requests? Yes, of course. And yeah, we definitely do see unhappy employees using these as a, a real tactic. I'm not sure employees always use them in the way that the, the ICO intended the, the process to be used. Um, you know, the idea of a subject access request initially was so that an individual could check how their personal information was being handled, essentially to make sure it was being stored correctly and to make sure that it was being um, treated safely and securely within an organisation. Um, you know, for example, that they weren't sending contact details to people who were going to try and sell them new windows or sharing health information with uh, insurance companies. In the employment world, though, people tend to use them in a more tactical way, as I've said. You know, we regularly see individuals make a subject access request at the same time as they raise a grievance to complain about something happening at work, or if they're trying to negotiate a settlement package from their employer, they will use it to try and um, sort of turn their hand in the, the negotiations. They can often be difficult, as we've we've heard and said for employers to comply with. So sometimes employees think it will um, it will mean that they'll not want to do the process of the subject access request and therefore will give in to the demands that they're raising. Um, employees also use it as a phishing exercise as well. If they think something might have happened, if they think someone's been talking about them, but they can't get the information in another way, they might submit a request hoping that they're going to, to be sent lots of emails which are talking about them in a negative way you know, and that they can then use that to bring a claim. I'd say that more often than not, they bring them for the nuisance factor. They just want to cause, cause a bit of a trouble. Sometimes this does work. As we said, the employer responds to it. In other situations, it annoys the employer. They dig their heels in. You know, they comply to the letter of the law with the subject access request, yeah, and it doesn't work. So you know, an employer's response can be quite varied. Interesting. It's good to know that it could backfire as well. There's not a guaranteed advantage in the dispute. Um, I think it is unfortunate the law can be used in that way when that presumably wasn't the original intention. I know that last year the government consulted on whether to reintroduce the £10 admin fee that was present under the old law that individuals had to pay to make a subject access request. Um, after the public consultation, they actually agreed not to go ahead with that and to keep it so that it's cost neutral, except for the circumstances we set out before. In that same consultation, the government did, however, decide to proceed with looking to decrease the threshold at which an organisation can charge a reasonable fee or actually refuse to respond. As we've spoken about, currently the threshold is that the request has to be manifestly unfounded or excessive. And following the consultation, the government's actually said they're going to look to reduce that so that it only needs to be vexatious or excessive. Uh, the approach hasn't been finalised, but do you see this change as being a positive one for employers? Yeah, I really think it would be. You know, we often see the word vexatious used in, in the employment world to describe things, and you know, changing it could potentially help to stop requests where the person's only using the, the system to kind of cause trouble for their employer or their ex-employer or always going on a fishing expedition. You know, those types of requests weren't stopped by the manifestly unfounded category because it didn't quite fit. Um, so it'd be interesting to see kind of if that does come in, the changes that it, it could make. What would your top tip be for dealing with subject access requests, if you have one? 
to probably reiterate the point I made earlier, which is that it's really important for organisations to have a written subject access request procedure in place. And this is absolutely crucial to ensure that key personnel involved in responding to a subject access request can mobilise quickly, they know what to do, and they're able to respond within the legal time limits. Where possible, this should be supported by the organisation using systems which allow for personal data to be searched for, reviewed, extracted, redacted, following a subject access request in a way that's easy and straightforward. Um, if searching and collating the data is an issue for your organisation, then there are third party service providers who can help with this process, but they can be quite costly to use. A data audit of the organisation's systems can reveal which repositories of data, which sources of data are most likely to be an issue if a subject access request or when a subject access request is received. And often in our experience, these are kind of old legacy systems or even paper-based records which can't be easily searched. And the organisation might want to prioritise searching in these sources first when receiving a subject access request, and that way they don't risk overrunning the deadline to respond. Um, Charlotte, in your experience, is there anything else which HR teams and line managers in particular can do to prepare for the eventuality of receiving a subject access request? There definitely are. And like you said, in relation to the processes, it's really worth investing some time in, in looking at this for, for businesses. Yeah, I think our top tip is really training all of those who have line management responsibilities in what the subject access request is and what it covers you know, to try and make the process as easy as possible if someone does make you know, a request. You know, some common sense things which employers can make sure that their employees kind of follow you know, to make sure that email and filing systems are kept up to date you know, and that they're easily searchable, like you said. You know, they keep all HR-related emails and documents in one place so they don't have them in lots of different people's you know, email folders. Um, that they're careful about what's said by email is probably the most important one though you know if in doubt have a conversation is something that we often say you know when writing internal notes when writing internal emails you, you need to bear in mind that the person you know who could be reading it could be a judge for example you know or the person it's about could be reading it in the future you know if you wouldn't want them to read it if you wouldn't say it to their face then we consider whether you put that in an email because there is a possibility and you know, we've seen a lot of instances where that has come back to white people you know, in the tribunal system or has affected their ability to defend employment tribunal claims as well. We also recommend that all staff have training on the GDPR and all the new obligations, including subject access requests, so that they know what they are and how they fit into the business. You know, and also data protection more generally is obviously wider than subject access requests, so it's important that employees know what they should be doing on a day-to-day -day basis anyway you know and what they need to take into consideration it, this doesn't just apply to those who manage staff it applies to everybody who handles personal information of clients of customers of, of businesses you know it's a wide obligation it's also important to remember that deleted emails can be searched as well so you know we've had clients in the past who thought that by deleting their emails you know they've got away from it and it's not going to be a problem but that's not the case obviously if they're still there they can be searched you know, and backup systems as well can be accessed too. Before we end our discussion though on subject access requests today, I think it's worth us just briefly touching on the risks of, of getting it wrong. Ryan, did you want to share some final thoughts with us about that? Yeah, of course. So if the subject, um, if the data subject is unhappy with how their request has been dealt with for one reason or another, in the first instance, they can complain to the organisation. And if they're not satisfied by the response they get from the organisation, 
as will often be the case if they've gone through the effort of making the complaint to begin with, then they can actually complain directly to the regulator afterwards, the ICO. Uh, the ICO will consider the complaint, consider the harm, if any, suffered by the individual, and may launch an investigation in response to the complaint. And this means that the organisation might receive correspondence from the ICO asking questions, etc. It's going to take management time and potentially legal costs for the organisation to respond to the ICO's inquiries. So it's really one you want to avoid happening where possible. If following this investigation, the ICO finds that the organisation hasn't followed the law, then it may give binding instructions on how the organisation should correct its procedures and documentation. If there's been a serious breach of the law, then the ICO might use its other enforcement powers. Um, that might include publishing a public notice about the breach, and that can lead to reputational harm for the organisation and or issuing fines, which potentially can be quite significant if it's a very serious breach. So obviously the lesson from that is it's, it's worth investing the time now to ensure that you respond to the subject access request properly and promptly first time around when you get it. So thank you for that, Ryan. And that brings us to an end of our brief foray into data protection and subject access requests for, for now. Thank you to Ryan for being our first guest star on the Employment Podcast. And thank you to everybody else for joining us as well. We hope you found it useful. And if you wanted further information about any of the issues we discussed today, then please do contact us via our website, which is www.parrysmith.co.uk or find us on LinkedIn.